0: Good evening everyone. On behalf of the CIS Executive Director Greg Lindsay and Chairman Peter Mason, it's my pleasure to welcome you. My name is Jennifer Buckingham, I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the CIS and I direct the 5 from 5 Reading Project. Student behaviour is a big problem in Australian schools, so I hope you will all behave yourselves and set a good example. We know this is a problem from teachers, principals and parents and we know this from data collected in government and international reports such as the Program for International Student Assessment otherwise known as PISA and the Trends in International Maths and Science Study also known as TIMS. In a survey conducted as part of the TIMS study, Australian school principals reported that around one third of year four students and one half of year eight students cause discipline problems. These problems range from arriving late and absenteeism through to cheating, swearing, vandalism and abuse of teachers. The PISA study asked 15-year-old students about behaviour in their schools. One third of Australian students reported that there was noise and disorder in their classrooms and that students don't listen to the teacher, compared with the OECD average of one quarter of students. 22% of Australian students said they can't work well in their classrooms because of poor student behaviour. This is twice the proportion of students who reported being unable to work well in their classrooms in the top performing PISA countries. It's not difficult to understand how behaviour affects learning. It's not simply a matter of reducing (coughs) the incidence of poor, poor behaviour but replacing disruptive and destructive behaviours with productive ones. To discuss how schools can go about doing that, we have three fantastic speakers. I'll introduce them to you in reverse order. The third speaker this evening is Kylie Hedger. Kylie was appointed to Eds High School as a targeted graduate out of university in 1992. Eds High School was a large school on the outskirts of Sydney that serves the public housing estate in that area. After leaving as head teacher of welfare and administration she was appointed head teacher of English in 2000 and in five years the English faculty moved their student data from 17% below state average up to the state average. She was appointed as the deputy of Elizabeth uh, MacArthur High School in 2008 and then appointed as principal in 2012. In that time Elizabeth MacArthur High School has moved from a school of 740 students to 1,200 and student data has improved by 2 to 3 per cent per year over the last four years. Our second speaker, Dr Sue O'Neill, is a lecturer in special education and classroom management and Deputy Director of the Bachelor of Education program in the School of Education at the University of New South Wales. Her research interests include preparation for classroom management in initial teacher education and the use of evidence-based classroom management practices, programs and models by pre-service beginning and experienced teachers. Sue was part of a panel convened by the New South Wales Board of Studies on the preparation of teachers for classroom management in 2014. Sue's presentation will be on the role of universities in the preparation of teachers in classroom and behaviour management, filling the research to practice gap. First up though, I'm thrilled to introduce Tom Bennett. Tom is the founder of ResearchEd, a wonderful grassroots organisation that started in the UK and now runs conferences in six countries with thousands of followers. The aim of ResearchEd is to help teachers become more aware of research and evidence. So you can see why we're pleased to have Tom at the CIS this evening. Tom ran two triumphant research aid conferences in Melbourne a few days ago, he's written four books about teacher training and in 2015 was long listed in the GEMS Global Teacher Prizes as well as being dubbed the UK Government's behaviours are. I'm not sure how well he likes being described like that but I thought I'd throw it in, advising on behaviour policy. He blogs and tweets and I highly recommend you follow him. There'll be an opportunity to ask questions uh, um, after all of the speakers have spoken, and there may be a quiz, but right now it's over to Tom.
1: Okay, I'm freaking out with the tech now. Guys, it's lovely to see you. Thank you very, very much for coming. I can't believe you made it out on a a Thursday evening. Wednesday evening, so you must be absolutely obsessed, and these are the kind of people I like to talk to. Um, My name's Tom Bennett. Um, I love being called a behavior czar. Uh, When else in your life will you be called a czar? Although the difference is, of course, that a czar actually has power and influence, but I get to act in a a recommendation factor um, sense in the UK. So we've written a couple of reports for the UK government, uh, which have been fairly well received and disseminated throughout the profession. Um, I want to talk to you about behavior. I call it the low-hanging fruit of education, and I also call it the forbidden fruit of education. And the reason I call it the low hanging fruit is because I think that when schools tackle behaviour and treat it as a priority rather than a byproduct of teaching, then enormous advances are possible. And I also call it the forbidden fruit because, bizarrely enough, in our school culture, not just in the UK, but also internationally. It appears to be one of those things that many people don't like to talk about. Or when they do, they talk about it in a very strange way, which I'll discuss in just a second. So, for the UK government, I most recently wrote two reports. The first one, uh, we did a year-long study of initial teacher training, or teacher preparation. And I was part of that, and I wrote the behavior section and also the research literacy section. And then the second report, we looked at not just teacher training, but I looked specifically at leadership and what leadership could do to maximise and optimise the behavioural environment of a school. Now, I called it creating a culture, and the reason we called it that was because we looked at dozens and dozens and scores and scores of schools and interviewed hundreds of head teachers and principals and academics, pupils and teachers and so on, and we asked them what they thought. We asked them what they did which created optimal behaviour environments, and almost all of them spoke very much of the same mind and of the same piece, and what many of them said was that what they had to do was they had to create a culture in the school. I'll we'll talk about what I mean by that in a second. So first of all, is there a problem? And I'm going to talk primarily about UK schools here. I'm not going to pretend any expertise in your zones. I'll, I'll get bricks thrown at me if I try and do that. But, but, but what I will say is, is that through research ed, um, I've now run conferences in six or seven different countries, and what I see is that, that many of the issues which face the UK also face, you know, many school systems throughout the world. I don't think that's a controversial thing to say, but what I do find quite interesting is that sometimes the, the same problems are universal, and that's, that's, that's something I think we can tackle. So first of all, is there a problem? Yes, is a simple answer. And the odd thing is that when you look at external global data, when you look at data which, collected, which is collected by uh, for example, Ofsted, which is our school inspectorate, the picture can seem surprisingly rosy. In 2009, the STEER report, for example, claimed that 99% of schools in the UK, the behaviour was satisfactory or better. Now, that's rather high, you know? And in my teaching career alone of of a mere 15 years. I feel like if that's true, then I must have seen the only bad ones, which can't be right. And I've taught in some wonderful schools, I hasten to add before anyone gets upset back in the UK. I know there are some people watching in the UK. Um, A YouGov poll, for example, which is a very large, very credible organization in the UK worked out that on average, on average, the school day loses one hour per day through dealing with misbehavior. Now, of course, that's high school, that's secondary school, that's the older children. So if that's the case, then multiply by every week and every year. In an average high school or secondary school's lifetime, that means that pupils in the worst schools lose, on average, a year of education. A year of education against the pupils that go to the schools with the best behaviour. Now, it probably won't surprise you if I say that that the schools with the worst behavior often correlates very, very strongly to the schools where the demographics exist that need behavior and learning the most. That, you know, the, 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 the low-income groups and so on. And that's a tragedy. That's a real tragedy. Um, there's a really great report. Finally, Ofsted finally managed to get its act together around about 2014 It had a change in management. In fact, it started to be run by somebody who used to be a head teacher himself and who ran a very challenging school. And all of a sudden, officers started to notice things. And there's a great report called Below the Radar in 2014. And for the first time ever, it admitted that there was a significant and substantial behavioural problem in UK schools. Um, I find it strange that I need to argue this, but I'm gonna argue that, pardon me, that good behaviour is positively correlated with every single positive outcome you could hope for in a school. Education is quite a battlefield, isn't it, ideologically? You know, the values that drive us and the values that we expect to see um, achieved through schooling. Some people, for example, see schooling as being um, a a vehicle for creating a workforce which is efficiently matched to the external environment. Some people see school as a way of preparing children for adult life. Some people see school as a means of uh, maximizing creativity, releasing the, the butterfly within, and so on. Some people see schools as exam factories. Ken Robinson thinks they are, particularly. Oh no, he doesn't, that's right. Or oh, he thinks he shouldn't be, I forget that. Um, I do love Ken Robinson, see my blogs for details. Um, whatever you think a school is for, focusing on behavior and improving behavior within a school is intrinsic to, 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 to raising the, 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 the success of those, of those factors. It's absolutely intrinsic to everything you could ever possibly want, helping children to behave. And I'd like to add a quick caveat here. By good behavior, I don't simply mean reducing misbehavior. Although I do mean that too. But it's important to get this. Good behavior means reducing misbehavior, you know, the things you don't want to see, but also encouraging and inculcating habits of excellence within children, which become part of their character, which become portable, which become levers within their own lives to create success in every single field in which they enter. I'm talking about things like self-restraint, self-regulation, kindness, sociability, confidence. All of these you know, great, lovely things we want, you know, you'd want your child to have. You, know, you wouldn't be happy saying to your child, I want you not to misbehave. You know, We don't want children to be prisoners within a kind of panop- panopticon, behaving only because they're being observed and threatened. We want them to behave, we want them to comply. Absolutely we do, I don't think that's a dirty word, but we want more than that. We want autonomy, we want agency, we want humanity. Um, I also call this the unspeakable scandal of education because sadly, and um, I I know this upsets some people, I think that certainly in the UK, there is some amazingly good teacher training, but not enough. And it's not guaranteed. Behaviour management training is not guaranteed in the life of your average training teacher. Oh, it might be mentioned. You might get a 45 minute lecture on it. I don't know if maybe some of you had that lecture. I now go and do the lecture. I'm the person that goes to the universities and does the lecture now. And the first thing I say to them is, this isn't enough. Behavior management is art, craft, and science. Tough, you're gonna gonna have to learn them all. Uh, And secondly, leadership development is very, very rarely guaranteed as being something that's built into the training life of a school leader. If you're a school leader, you can become a school leader without having had any experience slash formal training in the different strategies available to you in order to create effective behavioral systems within a school. You are essentially being asked to reinvent the wheel from scratch. And so too for classroom teachers. You'll learn it as you go along. You'll pick it up. The kids will teach you. That's not good enough. That's far from good enough. We wouldn't expect a pilot to learn the job on the job. We wouldn't expect somebody to learn swimming. I know you hear that phrase, i will learn it in at the deep end. Is that the best we've got? And the answer is no. And I've seen some amazing schools that do wonderful teacher training and wonderful leadership training. Big caveat. I've seen some wonderful institutions and higher education institutions that do fantastic jobs of this. And I always have to add that because people frequently take what I say and kind of universalize it. It's not all bad, but it's not good enough. And I've got no qualms whatsoever in saying that. And why has this happened? For me, I think there's two reasons why this has happened. There's been a cultural shift within society, and also there's been an ideological shift or entrenchment within education itself. Number one is the cultural. This is what Frank Ferreira, the English sociologist, frequently calls the crisis in adult authority, which is that, rightly and correctly, for the past 60, 70 years, there has been a realignment of how children and adults view themselves and their positions in relation to one another. That's probably for the good, I'm going to suggest, when you consider the conditions that children had to endure 60, 70 years ago. However, that realignment has caused confusion and uncertainty. And I know a great many teachers who started their careers, young or old, uncertain as to whether or not they could, for example, reprimand a child. Or uncertain if they were allowed to be friendly with them, or or uncertain if they were allowed to shake their hand. Uncertain what the relationship was, I mean this particular affects perhaps younger teachers who start and they feel like maybe there's only a few years difference between themselves and, and their older students. I mean some, some of you, are there any teachers in the room? There's one, I'm kidding. Almost, almost all of you for people at home, right? That's great. Well you know how it feels when you start and sometimes you think they look old. And I went from running nightclubs in Soho a natural progression into teaching, obviously. And half of my staff were just about a year younger than the the kids I was teaching. (coughs) Mind-blowing. Anyway, and then there's the ideological issue, which is that um, teaching has, there are many ways we can look at teaching, we can understand teaching, but there is absolutely a, a kind of grappling within teaching between what you might call the progressive and the traditional tradition of education. Now, the progressive model Uh, favours the child-centred approaches, favours the child-led learning model. And there is some value in that, and I'm not decrying that. However, it does cause us issues when we then apply that to our behavioural and social model of the classroom. Issues which are not insurmountable, but which need to be surmounted. Um, The rise of non-practitioner voice is something which particularly annoys me. Everybody has a right to talk about education. But as a practitioner from within the classroom, And as somebody who's been working very, very closely with behavioural models for the past 10 years or so, I do find that a lot of people who have never stepped foot inside a classroom have got very strong opinions about how classrooms are. And some of them go to university. And then some of them write papers about how we should run classrooms. Now, I have to be very careful here. There absolutely is a role for that. I've read some brilliant stuff which has guided my practice by people who are sympathetic to the issues that are faced within a classroom. But classroom behaviour management is as much a craft as it is a science, and it's both, but it very much needs an interface between both. Uh, And then finally there's this sense of idealism. Plenty of people have got lots of advice about how we should run schools and classrooms who are talking about the kind of children they would like to teach rather than the kind of children we do teach. And I've taught in basically nothing but challenging schools for the entirety of my career. I adore. Children. I adore teaching children. It's, it's, it's the great love of my life as a job. Mind you, my previous career wasn't much, much fun, but still. Um, it's, it's the kind of thing that once you've been in a school, I think you appreciate much more strongly what you should be looking at. So anyway, Dylan William, you may, may have said it before, but I certainly heard him saying this in Washington in 2016, everything works somewhere, nothing works everywhere. When we wrote this report, we were very careful to make sure we looked at different types of school. It wasn't just rough schools in inner cities, we looked at rural schools, uh, coastal schools, suburban schools, higher schools, lower schools, young schools, specialist schools and so on in all types of contexts. I wasn't looking for one-size-fits-all classroom management strategies or leadership strategies. What I was looking for was a more professional approach. I was looking for a range of strategies that were available to teachers and leaders which could then be selected as appropriate for each context and each school. That I think is, tre- is, teaching, is treating the profession as a profession rather than is treating them as, I don't know, chefs where there's a perfect recipe that will fit every school. I don't believe there is. We did come across some common themes that seem to be universal to effective school leadership systems and to effective class management systems. And I think that's probably because, fairly obviously, human, child and developmental psychology exists within finite limits. I mean, people are people. And of course, you get people at various points on the the spectrum when it comes to personality types and and, and kind of uh, social issues or not, but by and large, most people operate within certain limits. If you fire a gun in a theatre, most people run, and some people won't, but most people will. And so what I was looking for is what Dylan Williams describes there as the everything works somewhere, nothing works everywhere syndrome. I wanted best bets. I one the things that would work best for most people in most circumstances. And then you could work from that. I think that is the, by far the best way to train new school leaders and new teachers. You know, I'll give you the best bets first of all. You work on the details. You work on the craft. You work on the specialisms as you go along. Okay? So some tactics work everywhere. And many, if not most, tactics require some contextual interpretation. For example, if I were to say to you that classroom teachers need to be consistent our school leaders need to be consistent. I would probably five minutes, God, that quick. I would probably not be surprising you. But what consistency means in practice could look very, very different from one school to another. Every time I ask a school leader, What is your style of management? they'll say, Tough but fair. You know, nobody says they're not tough but fair. Everybody thinks they're tough but fair. Not everyone is. So obviously, we have to watch how we calibrate ourselves. And also, in my report, we tried to create systems that would support all staff. You cannot advise people on behaviour management if you're asking them to be superhuman. In the UK alone, there are 500,000 teachers. I guarantee you, they're not all going to be wonderful, sparkling, charismatic personalities who can think quickly on their feet and they've got, you know, all the, you know, they've got the voice or the, the status or whatever. No, you need to create a system that will support the least able, not just for t- students but for teachers too which is why I don't like behavior management advice, which requires you to have some kind of extraordinary level of skill when it comes to, you know, personality or charisma. So these were, <laughs> I'll, I'll cut to the chase. This is my 90 page report boiled down into seven bullet points. This is what you wanted really, right? This is all anyone wants. What are the tricks? What's the tip? Um, number one, Coming in at number one, <laughs> this now sounds like a rundown is an emphasis on robust and clear routines. There is no getting away with it. You You want to systematize the behaviors that you want to see happen frequently. And everyone I speak to goes, yeah, we do that. We've got routines, but do you? But do you? Go see a school that really has routines. One of the things I was blessed with, I must have seen about 200 schools in the past seven years, and I've been blessed to see some schools that really have routines, and it absolutely recalibrates your paradigm. Once you see it, if you get a chance to go to the UK, as I'm sure you all will very soon, um, go to see a school in London called Michaela School. It's extraordinarily strict. and I'm not suggesting every school should be like that, but my goodness, they do systems. And you have your own systems, but whatever systems you have, you have. Don't pussyfoot with them. Don't say, oh, well, we'll have it one day and then stop at the next. Number two, a clear, easily understood consequence system. Yes, sanctions and rewards. I've never seen a school that's even more than mildly challenging which doesn't have a good system of sanctions and rewards, fair, proportionate, used only when necessary. But if you don't have consequences for children's actions, you're teaching the children that their actions don't matter. And oddly enough, holding children to account raises their esteem for their behaviour within that system. Obviously, it doesn't have to be—you know—sanctions don't have to be ex- extremely punitive, as Bill Rogers, your man says that the certainty of the sanction is far more important than the severity of the sanction, I could not agree more. You don't have to beat a child. You know, A disappointed look for a teacher that they respect is punishment enough. And so too rewards. Number three, a relentless emphasis on high expectations. Now, that means a lot of things. If I had more time, I would go into it. But you must demonstrate high expectations. You mustn't simply say, we have very high expectations of you. You have to demonstrate those high expectations. If somebody's late to school, you call them to account for it. If somebody performs above and beyond your expectation, you congratulate them for it. You thank their parents for it. You make a fuss. Doug Lemov, the American behaviorist, gets his classes to do a Mexican wave every time someone says something fantastic and fabulous. I don't think that would work in Britain. (laughs) We're too British for that. But still, it's a great idea. Um, A consciously designed culture, which is to say, you think to yourself, how do I want things to be around here? By culture, I mean, How do we do things around here? Don't let it happen. If you let culture happen, it will design itself. It will not go away, it will not vanish. You will have a school culture, but it will not be the one you want. If you want 1,200 pupils to behave spontaneously in a way that you consider appropriate, then good luck. You must have chipped them or something. I'll be very quick now. Consistency, obviously, but through every cultural space, the classroom, the corridor, the playground, the school trip, the website, Consistency, absolute consistency. This is who we are. This is how we are. Social norms demonstrated in every aspect of life. We are social animals. Our psychology is social. Peer pressure is enormous. Once you've got past the tipping point of all the people in school thinking that learning is valuable, you get them to self-regulate. And that's extraordinary. you see that in some schools where the children actually put pressure on one another to be good, kind, sociable, and hardworking. And finally, the seasoning in the mix, positive relationships constantly sought. Not directly, but indirectly. That sense of positive regard for every single one of your students. Nobody is a nuisance. Nobody is a problem. Everyone is part of the community. If you're going to create a community, if you want them to think that they are part of the school identity, you have to make them want to be part of that identity. You do not exclude pupils willy-nilly. If you do exclude physically, it has to be for extremely good reasons. And I'm not against exclusions. Sometimes you need to do that just to maintain the the student body, but as rare as possible. So, I'll finish on this. None of this is easy to deliver. The systems themselves can be relatively simple and they can be very, very varied. What works in a primary school, (laughs) is that time for me to go to sleep? What works in a primary school may not work in a higher education college. You may have to interpret these strategies differently, which is why in my report I create a range of uh, possibilities for how you could do it. But this is not easy, it takes hard work, it takes diligence, it takes a constant vigilant eye, it takes a certain amount of panache and humor. Um, I suggest that we need a revolution of emphasis in the way we prepare teachers, the way we professionally develop teachers and leaders, and the way we train our school leaders. That we need to see it no longer as a bolt-on, a tag-on, or something that's stapled on to the school system, that this is something we need to tackle and focus consciously. There's an initial opportunity cost in setting these systems up. They're hard work, but the dividend far outweighs that cost. Thank you very much.
2: Good evening, and again, thank you for coming this evening. I'm not going to go tech. I'm hopefully going to just talk to you. And for many of you as teacher to teacher, I certainly have a background as a classroom teacher, worked for years in the state education system here in New South Wales, and ended up working in some very interesting schools with some very challenging students, and then moved to being a behaviour consultant, what we used to call those old-fashioned itinerant support teacher behaviour positions, and did that for over 10 years before moving into higher ed. So I hope that little bit of background helps you to understand that I am a teacher and always will be a teacher. Another thing I'd like to declare straight up is, perhaps I am triply damned. I am a mother of Generation Z youths. I am a teacher and I am a teacher educator. Supposedly, amongst those things, I could possibly be accused of being the source of all poor behaviour that exists in your schools. (laughs) So, I'm prepared for that. Anyway, I read with great interest Tom's report and I guess what I did was I reflected on that UK context to what we have happening here in Australia. And I'm not going to pretend that I know what's happening everywhere. I certainly have a bit of an overview based on my past research. I most intimately know my own context here in New South Wales, so I will say that as well. What struck me was that there was a real parallel between some of the practices advocated uh, in that report, plus what's something that we've a model or a framework we've quite embraced here in Australia from the US that positive behaviour intervention and support model. It's a framework and the idea is that we contextualise it to our schools and so that was interesting for me to see those parallels, all of those, those good things that we were talking about on Tom's last slide are certainly inherent in some of the beliefs that underpin that framework. The interesting thing is that since 2005 when Australia, and particularly South West Sydney, uh, began to adopt this framework, this ideal, this, this model of how we might go about things, it's quite taken off and you'll find that it's it exists in state schools, in the Catholic system as well as the independent school system. So it's not something that's all that uh, uncommon now. The upside of this is that a number of teacher preparation programs make sure that they now mentioned this particular framework. So it is part of that initial teacher education that they are getting. Okay, so as a teacher educator, I was, as I said, drawn to some of those um, recommendations that came about and particularly in the area of initial teacher training. And before I go any further, I just want to point out that for me, behaviour management is just one piece of the classroom management puzzle. It's a part, it's not the be all and end all, sorry. Um, I know that when we talk to teachers about what their understanding of classroom management is, they'll always go to that, oh, it's about control, order, discipline, as what classroom management means. I guess part of my job as an initial teacher educator is to try and expand that view of what classroom management actually is and that they're interconnected pieces of puzzle that work together and they are never divorced from the instruction. What we're actually, what we're trying to teach, the activities that we're generating in our classrooms to hopefully teach that content. And also when you think about it, how we're trying to inculcate some of those social values and you know attitudes, um, beliefs about education, but also how we treat each other as well. It's all tied up for me in what I believe classroom management is. So in Australia there are a variety of models of initial teacher education, but we still I guess in some ways come from quite a traditional space. Well traditional in the sense that we've now had teacher education as part of a university course. Once we had colleges of education and some of uh, my older teacher colleagues in the, o- in the audience may well have gone to teacher's college rather than to a university. And certainly there has been a shift to moving over to the university space to deliver initial teacher education. So as far as where does the practice come in, I guess that's where we rely on schools such as yours to uh, take our uh, our. Pr- For professional experience, our teachers as they come through that we're preparing. And that's where they get to put some of this practice into the real practice of classrooms that we've been teaching them. It's not to say that we don't give them opportunities within our own setting, but of course that is not the real life and blood of a real classroom. So within real schools we know that our beginning teachers have the opportunity to certainly see, hopefully see, many of the things we talk to them about when we're back at the university. So we rely on that connection. But we also have other means that we can do that as well. We certainly have access to some fantastic videos of exemplary teachers really demonstrating the points that we're trying to make about various aspects of how you develop your classroom management skills. So we also have the ability for people like myself who we're able to actually model when we're actually teaching our large cohorts of students. On average, I would have a group of between two and 250 young people that would sit sit in front of me, me, generally with their, their digital devices up and a little field of apples glowing back at me. And certainly I guess I feel the need to make sure that I live and breathe what I am teaching them. So I have to actually demonstrate really good classroom management practices to them. And I make no apology for that when I meet them in our first lecture. You will notice that I will do things, I will demonstrate and it may well be on you, so be prepared. And this lanyard that seems to have me tethered here, it's not going to restrict me, I will demonstrate what I mean. I guess tonight one of the main things and the reason why I was asked to come along was that beginning or that initial teacher preparation research that was part of my doctoral research. And I just put it out there that this research was conducted back in 2009 through about 2012. So it's not to say that things haven't changed. And there are some indications certainly when I was part of the uh, the BOSTES panel back in 2014 when we were only looking at New South Wales initial teacher preparation courses, there was a shift towards at least the language of saying that more evidence based practice was being included in our initial teacher education classroom management courses. So that was at least a positive thing. I'll make no um, secret of it, I'm a really staunch advocate for evidence-based practice and why. I guess as a special educator, I believe we don't have time to waste in our classrooms trying out interesting little things that sound like they might be good touchy-feeling approaches. I guess because our children are often behind the eight ball, we need to start with what we know works and what's proven to be effective. It's not to say that at some other point in time some of those other new innovative approaches that get developed won't eventually get to that status of being evidence-based practice but in the absence of that proof yet I guess I come at a core range of skills and knowledge that I believe needs to be imparted to our initial or our beginning teachers in that process. Mm. The interesting thing is that with teachers. There seems to be a bit of an allergy to do with reading and engaging in the research. Now anyone who's read a highfalutin academic paper might well get a little bit turned off by the time they get to the results section, particularly if you're not a quantitative researcher. You might be a little bit put off by some of the things there. And I guess what I would like to put to you is this. I completely understand that. And I guess what I believe is part of my role as an academic in this area is to take that research and bring it to a level of practitioner. How can you use what we've discovered in all of those lovely complicated graphs and figures? It's not to say that you can't interpret them, but you don't have time. You're busy teachers. It's my job to give you what you need to know. And I make sure I do that in any professional learning that I do as well as my initial, initial teacher education approaches. I have perhaps the luxury of time to read that research. My radar is up on that research. That's my bread and butter. I have that time, so I have that ability to sift through it, to make sense of it and impart that. One problem that I guess we have is, and we we know, and certainly uh, Russell Gersten tells us, that because teachers have this sort of almost allergy to reading that kind of research, they tend to look to their peers within staff rooms or otherwise to get advice on classroom and behaviour management. And some of that advice is great, but we also know it has some vulnerabilities too. You as a beginning teacher might well sit next to someone who's quite jaded and who you know, might have had an absolute neck full and the advice you might be given may not be the best advice you could be given. So we need to be careful about that too. So that's why I believe there's still a role for us in in higher education in this area. Now, I know uh, Tom talks about a combination of uh, classroom management being and behaviour management being about science, art, craft. I guess for me, I can't have a science background. For me, I believe it's actually a science. And I'd like to suggest that perhaps give me just about anybody. And if we prepare them the right way and we give them the right supports, they can actually do a great job of being a teacher. That might be a bit controversial for some of you. OK, so for me, is there such thing as born teachers? That's a debate I'm not going into, but I believe that we can make good teachers by how we prepare them. And out there in schools, you have a role to play in that as well. You are part of the puzzle as I am part of the puzzle. And we need to do a better job of working together. So what was the motivation for the research work that I actually did? So recall my initial opening of who I am, that 10 years spent as an itinerant support teacher of behaviour. Working in schools, lots and lots of schools, lots of classrooms with lots of teachers and coming away thinking, how is it that so many of the teachers I'm working with don't seem to have some of these fundamental concepts that they should have? Why was this so? And it wasn't just a case of with the most challenging child that was in the class, and that was often why it was called in. So there were things that I thought, okay, well there's something going on here, and what can I do to improve it? And I guess that's when I realised a move to higher ed might be the right place for me, where I might make more impact at the early stage where teachers were developing a sense of what it was to be a teacher. What we know, I guess, from the research, is that it's these minor disruptive behaviours that can sometimes escalate, that are the, the drip, 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 that can drive us as teachers a little bit crazy. We know that those rare and extreme occurrences of those violence fights, although in some schools those fights might be quite common, for the average garden variety teacher, if there is one of those, um, the most of the things that I guess tend to niggle away at us is is that whispering that goes on in the classroom, the calling out, the getting up, the moving around, the the, the passive aggressive non-compliance as well as the overt occasional uh, non-compliance. And I guess it's those things that I was really invested in working with teachers in my previous role and also gave me a sense of, well, what did I need to make sure that I was including in my initial teacher preparation? And I guess I've been very much guided by what works and certainly that evidence base. Now, in some ways, I'm disappointed that I don't have something called the Handbook of Classroom Management with me here today to actually show you the depth of research that we have in the area of classroom management. It's about this thick. Do I expect the average classroom teacher to go through that? No. It's not your job. Whose job is it to know about? What's been done? Where are we at? and Where are we going next? That's mine. It's also my job to make sure I give you what you need to know. And I'm very, very serious about that. So I guess part of that that time spent in classrooms working in that consultant position made me want to actually investigate more, well what was actually going on in initial teacher preparation if I was seeing this lack of skills in some fairly fundamental things that I thought were sort of, they should be there, they should be foundation skills. I wanted to find out from beginning teachers as well what they thought was going on with their preparation, how prepared they felt, what did they know about. And that was really fascinating for me. It had to be if I was going to spend the next three and a half years of my life on it. So, and I also looked at the textbooks that were being prescribed to you as well as beginning teachers. Yes, there was a gap between what we definitely were putting in our initial teacher education and evidence based practices. Funny that. To make it clear, the research that I conducted in those, getting on for now, almost what, eight years ago and onwards, it really was only looking at primary education. So I'll put that out there. It's not to say that I haven't gone on to do some research in high school teacher prep. I currently work in a program that only teaches high school teachers. And so the research I'm conducting on my own teaching practice, hopefully I'll publish at the end of this year. So the two thirds of initial teacher education providers in Australia, which were around about 40 different institutions, but about two thirds of those institutions responded, which was fantastic. It was great. But I wasn't satisfied with that. So I went and had a look at what the publicly available information on all those websites. And I did a bit of an audit of what was going on. I looked at course outlines and it was amazing how much publicly <coughs> available information there was in this area of initial teacher education. So I was able to really gather a fantastic picture of what was going on in that space. And I guess what concerned me was that there was a dominance of what we call these theoretical models of management. And for some of you who are sitting in the audience, if I mention the names of, say, for instance, William Glasser or Drakers, some of you might nod your head, some of you might think, oh, there's something about that. There was a predominance of these theoretical models of management and the problem that I guess I have with these is that many of them come from the 60s and 70s. They were also sometimes developed by people who had never been in classrooms, were never teachers. And that concerned me in some ways as well. There's also an issue that we had that they tended to focus on only one piece of that classroom management puzzle, in my opinion, which wasn't really giving teachers what they needed to know. We also had a problem that The the rate, the number of these models and the rate at which we might be getting through them in our undergraduate course. Let's assume in my fantasy land we actually have a standalone course in every teacher education program, which we don't. Sometimes we embed it, we infuse it. Let's assume we have a 12-week course. Funny that, on average we had a dozen theoretical models of management that were part of the curriculum of what we would be teaching. We're going to do Drakers one week, we're going to do Glass the next week. Now you might have two to three hours that you were going to learn about that model. Is that really enough to get a sense of it? Is it enough to really have an understanding of how one would actually apply this in practice? I guess I'd argue no. That's honestly how I feel about this. When's the right time to perhaps look at those theoretical models? I'm going to suggest to you possibly five or ten years down the track if you really want to once you've been in classrooms. But certainly not as an initial place to start from. And I guess that's where I come from, this different position where I have a sense of I really approach this from what do you need to know how to do? What are the basics? And that sev- that, those lovely seven points that Tom put up there absolutely are at the core of what you would find in my initial teacher preparation course. We start with those wonderful proactive things, the things we know that minimise misbehaviour and problems in the first place. Then we work through to, well, what do you do if and when? Despite the best lessons that could be developed, that whole, you know, build that, you know, field and they will come. We all know if we've worked in tough schools, you can have designed the best lesson in the world, and kids, if they are on that path, they will they will railroad it. We know that. So you need to know what to do. So again, what's the problem with all those models of management? I'm gonna impart twelve of those to you, and I'm also gonna say this to you. You know what? You cherry pick from those whatever resonates with you. You put that together, you mix them all up and you design your own, your own approach based on your own philosophy. This sounds really lovely but it's problematic because we have our least experienced teachers cherry picking from very teacher-centred approaches to very student-centred approaches and not knowing the difference. No wonder some of this doesn't work. So there is a gap between evidence-based practice. There certainly has been in in, initial teacher education. And I guess I'm hoping that research that I'm putting out there is changing that practice a little bit. And I certainly get that feeling between that time that I released my work and even sitting in that meeting in 2014 with Boztes that there had been a shift and an understanding that evidence-based practices had to underpin what we were doing. Okay, so. The other big problem we've got is is this, I've already alluded to it, that we don't necessarily have a standalone course in classroom management as well. And that's something which I guess I've been fighting quite hard for. We know that not only do you need to know your content, you need to know effective teaching methods, but you also need to have classroom management as a skill. And if out of say for instance a four year course of say 32 different courses in that program, you can't find space to give one course to classroom management I don't think that's good enough. And I think we've got a real issue that if we talk about infusing or embedding it, we run a risk of really not doing it the service that it deserves. And I know that there are people who believe it doesn't deserve a privileged space in teacher education. I'm not one of them. Okay, so what can we do? We need to look at what works. We need to get to the core and the foundation skills. Teachers need to know what to do, how to do it, when to do it, and why. That's what's important and that's what underpins my approach to teacher education. The other problem we've got is, are there enough researchers in this area in Australia so you can guarantee that in all those initial teacher education courses, you had someone who had a research background in classroom management. No, I'm part of a very, very small <coughs> cohort of academics in this area. Back in the day when I did my research, one in three universities or these initial teacher education programs actually had a researcher active in that area who was teaching into this area. Most of you understand about teaching out of area and that's something that happens in higher education and in particular for classroom management. Can I miraculously generate a whole lot of other researchers in this area? No. But I'm hoping that at least if we can publish about what makes a good or exemplary initial teacher education program, perhaps those who get asked to adopt that might look to some of those ideas about how we go about doing it. And they might choose better textbooks than ones that present those 12 different models of management, that once you've purchased it, you've read it, you put it back on that shelf. There's some young men sitting in the back of the audience that are nodding their heads, so maybe that makes sense to you in particular. Okay. Okay, so that's the crux of it. We need to do better. I believe that there are many of us doing better and hopefully you as teachers and as educational leaders are starting to see that come through in your schools. If you're not, do ask, do talk to us. We welcome feedback and we welcome and we do want to work with you to improve our practice. It's what some of us actually sort of live for, getting this right. I do not want to be part of the con- contribution to one in three resigning from teaching in three years and half gone within five. That's not good enough for me not good enough at all. Anyway, thank you for listening.
3: And I'm at the pointy end of the teacher education. Uh, my, My slides up, yes. Um, I'll uh, first start off, of course, by um, acknowledging the traditional custodians of this land, the Gadigal people um, of the Aurora Nation, and I extend that respect to any Aboriginal people here present today, pick the Department of Education um, principal from that one. Um, I, of course, am lucky enough to be having the best job in the planet. I'm a principal and a teacher and I can't imagine why I look at other people who aren't teachers and I can't imagine Why are you not teachers? It's a great job. Um, And I am so privileged to have this position. I, of course, was appointed to Ed's High School in uh, straight out of uni. And um, I had to go to Dimmicks in town and buy um, a new Gregory's at the time. This was pre, for anyone who doesn't understand this, uh, that was before Google Maps. Um, I Had to go in because my one had limited maps. Um, at Liverpool because I'd gone, when I went to Sydney Uni, um, my father thought that was um, as far west as um, the Gregories needed to go um, because it was west of Centennial Park and that was as far as our 1925 um, Gregories, I think, went needed to go. So, and I was called names at, Liz, at um, Ed's High School that I had to look up because I didn't even know they were insulting me to start off with because I hadn't heard half the things I was being called. And then I was appointed head teacher in 2000. Um, in the English department and I had (laughs) one of eight staff and five of them were beginning teachers in their first year of teaching. So um, I was of course um, preying on your um, uh, initial teacher education in the hope, because I can't be in every classroom um, when there's five um, beginning teachers. And, of course, then I was appointed to um, Elizabeth MacArthur High School as deputy, and that was a whole change for me. Um, Ed's High School had drawn only from the Housing Commission and Public Housing Estate um, at Ed's. And if you don't know where Ed's is, if you're driving to Canberra, and just before you kind of hit – if you go to Canberra, you've gone too far, but we're the last exit – um, on the M5, um, before you hit Picton or something else, you just keep going. We call ourselves the Jewel of the West, um, and the, um, uh, the, um, just before you hit the Southern Highlands. And Elizabeth MacArthur is even further out than Ed's, it's in Camden, and if you're worried about cold and you think that bus duty at Camden isn't pleasant, it wind comes straight off the Antarctic um, there. And when I was appointed to as Deputy Principal, I applied for the position because Elizabeth MacArthur was the residual school. It was the school um, that you sent your kid to if you didn't get into anywhere else. So if... Camden didn't take you, or Eldersley um, or anywhere else, um, and you had to go. You had to send your kids. Elizabeth Macarthur. We were about at seven forty, and if any um, department of Ed people here know that seven forty is a key number because under seven hundred you lose your second deputy, and I would have died um, if one of us had left because at the time as deputy I used to have to sit on the wall out the back, otherwise they would light something at lunchtime normally a bin or themselves. So we were around 12% below state average at the time across our, um, the um, the whole of our HSC subjects. That's probably why no one wanted to send their kid there. Um, so we started on a whole new system. We were going to turn a good school into a great school. And these, are, of course, are the people who we use. I mean, Department of Ed love Hattie. Um, we, yeah, if you've met him, you don't love him. But we you know, you we love his research. But um and of course we love Timpley and we love Hargraves and Fullen and um I am in awe of Bill Rogers um because I worked at Ed's. And um but Senge was the person who mo- we most used in our new plan. So um a lot and I the evidence based practice really resonates with me because as Hattie talks about, we taught, we use a lot of time, we spend a lot of time on things that don't matter. And you need to spend your time on things that matter. Um, and you need to use your research about that. And so what matters is of course breaking down inconsistency. There is more inconsistency as how he tells us between teachers in the same class, in the same block as there are between schools. It doesn't matter whether you send a kid to a private school, public school, girls school, boys school, selective school. It matters who's in your classroom with um, your child. So. My whole career we've been looking at breaking down inconsistencies. When you've got eight staff and five of them are new, you need to talk about consistency. Um, and we're talking about ensuring teacher quality. Um, Australia has a set of Australian teaching standards. The Department of Education New South Wales has a teacher improvement program that supports teachers to meet those standards. If you can't meet them, you don't have any place in teacher education. That's just what it is. You can't be a teacher. And if you don't have EQ, it kind of it's a hard job too. Um, and you need to have all your teachers working towards the same goal. You can't have people all doing their own thing. You've got to be focused on a shared vision and working in the same place. And you've got to focus on classroom practice. It's about your classroom management. It's about your pedagogy. It's about the the quality of you. You can't just focus on behaviour. And you can't just focus on pedagogy. They have to be linked because everything in education is linked. Um, the the, the what happened to the kid that morning when they woke up? Even though you can't control it, it affects what your day, and it affects so your well-being, your mental health, the, um, the your pedagogy, your pra- planning, your programming, your assessment, your feedback, and your classroom management is all interconnected. And you've got to focus on that. And there has to be clear expectations. That's what we were, and I'm, you're singing my tune there when you're talking about clear expectations. You have to have your clear expectations for your students and your student body, but also your staff. They need to know what you require. And you, the parents need to too. It is unacceptable to come to school and model inappropriate behaviour if you're an adult. If you are, either the, the department has a code of conduct and the parents have a code of conduct. You do not come onto my site if you cannot model appropriate behaviour as an adult and if that means I have to issue and use my powers under the Enclosed Lands Act to ban you from my site then I will. And as a teacher you need to be able to extend and be able to model appropriate behaviour and students need to be able to know that. And as a principal you need a personality. You know, if you don't have one, I don't know how you do the job because the parent body in your community need to trust you and they need to—they don't even need to like you, but they need to trust you and they need to know when they entrust their child to you, the most precious thing they have in their life, they've got to at least feel that, that they have some empathy with you and that they have a connection with you and they want to see you. But you can't palm off your underling or your deputy or something. They want to see you. This is Elizabeth MacArthur High School. This is you see the Simon Sinek um, influence that was really big in the department um, for our last planning cycle. So this is Elizabeth MacArthur. At the center is our values platform. It's how we work. We shape the future to create, um, to pursue excellence and create boundless opportunities. That is what drives us. That is the program, that is the value statement that we created with our community, our parents and our um, student body and our staff and that is what we, that's how, that focuses our um, area on everything we do. Schools are busy places. We do everything. Mm Um, And you need to have one focus goal and this is where we are heading. We are always pursuing excellence. The next circle is how we do that and, of course, what we do. This is how we focus, of course, on the um, Senge work. We focus on systems leadership, putting things together, having a shared vision, which you just saw, and having a shared value statement. We work on personal mastery, having a learning platform for our staff, um, and we focus on improving mental models and raising expectations and team learning. So this was the English, um, back in 2000, this was the English faculty um, value statement. I was a young leader, it's my first leadership. I thought, yeah, four was a great idea. And it's good when you got eight people, you can manage with four. When you've got 80 staff and 1,200 kids, you need something a bit simpler. Um, hence, we've got shaping the future by pursuing excellence, and creating boundless opportunities. And um, that's what we, every with parents, with staff, with students, All three stakeholders, we're always pursuing excellence and we're always looking for opportunities so every kid can shine. And it's, if you see here, every wall, every um, door, every window needs to pay, pay its weight. It's not just a door or window, it's a chance for us to show what we are heading with and what, so even our door numbers have our motto, Um, respect responsibility and pride and have our value statement so everyone knows it every door every wall every window if there's a space then we need to be able to use it to teach Mm. something and to use our value statement um, so we also have a, a values plat- a, a learning platform that every staff member does. A lot of the Hatties work talking about, you know, at this school we, you know, there's a culture and creating a culture is very important. Uh, creating a culture with our values platform but also the extra um, training that is mandatory at Elizabeth MacArthur High School because that's the way we do things at Elizabeth MacArthur High School and we use that kind of peer pressure. No one says, but I don't want to do the 28-hour program after school because... That's how we do it. And You don't have to work at Elizabeth MacArthur High School. You can work anywhere you like. The children are the only ones who are legally bound to be here. And if you want to find another job, you go for it. But if you're here, as you're in the program. Um, we have, of course we can't, these are expensive and we can't always afford to do them in school hours. So, um, and we like to use our money to release staff to um, collaboratively plan not to do this program. So we tend to run these after school and on weekends and holidays, sorry, staff stand down time, which is the new phrase we use. So all our staff, and um, because not that I don't um, trust our beginning teacher education programs, but I just wanna make sure that we're all on the same page in our school. So we all do format, um, which is a programming um, system um, that works on the learning cycle of the brain. All our staff use format for their programs. Um, format saved my life as a head teacher of English and that's why it's going, to, um, it's going to save all the lives of my staff to Elizabeth MacArthur High School. We all do JERIC which is the University of New South Wales um, gifted education program so it can help my staff to differentiate. In 2010 we became a partially selective high school which means out of our 230 kids in each form 11 of them are um, selective and gifted um, which means my staff has to move all the way from um, the top 10% of the state all the way down to the child with a lean difficulty and his borderline IO based on a um, stage two level. And sometimes in elective classes in the same classroom. So the differentiation has to be wide. Um, all my staff do GLASA. And I know you're thinking, like you were thinking before, oh, that's that timeout room thing I did in back in 1990. No. No, it's not. Um, It's different. Uh, Basically what the GLASA program does now is it teaches staff about how to use coaching conversations and build relationships with kids, which is the key to classroom management. And we have ALARM, which is a writing structure um, that is based on um, being able to scaffold writing. So we all, every staff member has to um, do this in the first two years, we do a roving um, training. With all those, and we also then release um, staff and release whole faculties to be able to joint program and do. Um, lesson observations. We are really keen on lesson observations, be able to give feedback to staff. All my head teachers get two periods, release a cycle to do lesson observations. Um, it only costs us like 10 periods in the timetable, but and it's tokenistic in a way. But um, all my staff have lesson observations with their su- um, supervisors, but also they have teams where they work in trium um, troika teams where they do lesson observations on each other um, in a group of three. And we also um, spend a lot of time on making sure that the program that they've perfected is the program that they're teaching. Um, we also, I critique all the programs. I collect them at the end of every term. It's like, you know, the old take-home year. I was an English teacher, so I always had a box of marking at the end of every um, term. Now I have a box of programs. So we give written and verbal feedback to every staff member on every program, 7 through to 12. And I check them off their timetable too. Um, so you can't just just not give me one. And um, we also, we look at the whole systems leadership of the school where we're talking about um, a whole school-wide expectations. We use um, positive behaviour for learning, uh, as you said. We, and the normal positive behaviour learning has respect, responsibility and safety, but our motto is respect, responsibility and pride, and the kids wouldn't change it, even though I tried um, when I came in, but we had to stick with it, and I thought it was silly to have a different PBL model to our motto so our PBL model runs on a respect responsibility and pride as well um, and it means that so what the PBL model weeks we explicitly teach Pedagogy, and we explicitly teach content. We need to explicitly teach behavioural expectations as well to kids. So once a cycle, um, every roll call goes through a program where we we explicitly teach them the behavioural expectations. The welfare team create the lessons, but they create the lessons with our future teachers group. I told you teaching is the best group. Well, I start really early. In year 11, we have a group of students, students who volunteer to be part of the future leaders program, future teachers program. So they actually have time um, with their facilitators and the welfare team and they construct lessons and they go and teach lessons with their um, facilitator and they teach the um, roll call lessons and yes we have to rotate the year 10 um, roll calls because no one wants to take the year 10 roll calls for obvious reasons Um, and so they have to if they do one year 10 roll call they get a year 7 one afterwards Um, it's part of the deal but using the kids um, when you're using kids to teach kids about um, behaviour, I think it has a higher impact. It certainly does in our school. In fact, we've had a lot more take up with the um, Tell Them From Me survey and also from their surveys that we do with kids. They like the students teaching the content better, but also you get a better consistency. When you give a lesson plan to staff, they do their own thing. You know, oh, I didn't like that bit, so I just did something else. Um, or I have this whole new vision for how it's gonna be. When kids teach it, they do what they're told. They have the program that they've planned and they teach it. And you know that when kids do it, it's done To And they have a teacher there to help make sure that, you know, it goes the way it's supposed to go. But then you get consistency. Um, and it's enforced consistency. And it's kids, talking to kids about their behaviour expectations. We also have, um, up on every wall, in every area, like the PBL schools do, we have exactly what is expected in each area, so you know. And if the a casual teacher from plagiarism, they know what's expected. So if you're in the canteen, you gotta line up behind the line, because that's showing responsibility. And you need to wait your turn, because that's showing respect. And you need to say please and thank you, because that's taking pride in yourself and um, others. I know, we you, you really, really had to mesh those things together. Um, <coughs> but <laughs> the kids don't know. Um, So we also use a lot, we spend a lot of time on supporting staff with classroom management um, and their pedagogy. We have a head teacher teaching and learning, we have a head teacher mentor, because even though we started, when I started in 2008, the majority of my staff were in their final few years of um, teaching. At the moment now, they all retired. And um, we now have 30% of our staff in their first two years of teaching. Um, I did mention about the teacher improvement program, it um, gets a lot of um, um, resignations pretty quick when you start a few of those, and um, then you we end up with, of course, um, all beginning teachers. So we have head teacher mentors to support them. Part of the beginning teacher funding that we get for our schools, um, we've got sixty thousand dollars worth of teacher beginning teacher money because we've got so many beginning teachers. So we've got our own head teacher now. Um, we also have instructional coaches as well, and we've released them from class using the Jim Knight instructional coaching model where you film um, the staff member and you, as the coach you go over with the staff member about their practice and you then you coach them into and there's a lot of support there. So there's a lot of team teaching that goes on with those instructional coaches and there's a lot of explicit work where you actually break down the lesson and give them feedback on the lesson and film it so you can actually measure the improvement um, in those things and because they're there too sometimes you can work with someone you can get an improvement and then they slide back in so they're always there to keep having follow-up support with staff but when all that doesn't work of course um, there is the teacher improvement program 10 weeks Um, and then you get some career coaching so um, behavioural expectations, of course, we're set up, yes, um, and we need to upskill staff and have coaching conversations with staff too. And um, we have a consistent program about detention. We have a, you know, like everyone does, you know, you get the form you fill out about um, why you got into this position, what you're going to do next, um, all those sort of um, things because, as we say, it's not the detention, it's the conversation you have on the detention that makes the difference with the kid. Um, Not doing seat time. If you're just gonna do 15 minutes of seat time at lunch, what's the point of that? It's about modifying the behavior, not punishing the kid. And that's what we've been working on. So through all this, and um, uh, at the end we're talking, uh, Ed's high school was like the apprenticeship that you do, um to become a principal and after five years um at ed's high school we ended up taking it from 17 percent below state average to um state average now it's kind of easy when you just got one subject to deal with i didn't realize 80 staff um, and 1200 kids getting 23 subjects um, to move was going to be quite um the feat but um after quite a long time, so after eight years we've actually got um, the HSC results at Elizabeth MacArthur do only 3% below state average and our first selective stream are coming through now so that should chip us right over the edge and that was all done with comprehensive kids. So before a selective child even sat a HSC, because it takes six years of course to get the one thing through, um, we'd already improved our results by 9% across uh, but our value added from years nine to twelve is way above state average. Um, on the uh, BI, of anyone Department of Ed people now BI is now Scout, um, and it shows a great little trend on there. We started with seven hundred and forty students. We've now got we're now pushing twelve hundred. Um, we're now uh, becoming one of the schools of choice um, in the area. We're now getting you know, hit bombarded with out of area in where people are starting to lie about where they live um, to get in. You know, that if everyone you, you experienced that before. No, stat deck, stat deck, no stat deck, no stat deck. Um, we've had our suspensions. When I was deputy, I was doing about 400 suspensions a year, which was a killer, um, especially when you spend your lunchtime sitting on a wall um, an hour a day. But now we're down to about 120 to 200 suspensions a year, um, which is pretty good considering we've got another 400 kids um, in the school. But we used to do about four expulsions a year as well. And now um, if we do any, um, it's very, very rare. Um, We do have a prisoner exchange um, policy with Eldersley but we haven't yet had to um, use that which I think, I'm very proud of that bit actually because um, you want to be able to work with the family and work with the kids to get the best outcome for the kids. Um, And as we talk about with our um, um, boundless opportunities, what we want is an opportunity for every kid And as we say, we'll be in anything. If there is a um, opportunity for kids to go on equestrian, and one kid wants to go on equestrian, and we've got someone who'll take them, we'll find a, we'll make a equestrian blanket, and we'll whack the school logo on it, and we'll be there. We had some kids year 11 chemistry wanted to do a tritation, um competition. I don't, I don't even know if I said that correctly, but we, well, fine, we bought lab coats and put our emblem on it, and we're at a Tritation competition. Um, if there is a debating competition or football or whatever if we've we've got a kid that wants to do it we're going to go in it Um, because we're about creating opportunity and if there's an opportunity for a child with a conduct disorder and multiple um, disabilities we are going to find what works for them and we're going to work to find the best outcomes for them um, whatever that be and of course as we finish up any um, statement um, and I've gone over (laughs) Oh, okay. <laughs> um, as we finish every um, assembly at uh, Elizabeth MacArthur High School and every, every event and every opportunity that we have the kids or the families um, together, we always um, talk about the way that all these things that we've just talked about today, um, this is how we shape the future, this is how we're, create, we're pursuing excellence because we're not stopped. Even though we've got better results, we haven't stopped yet. We're just That's why our value statement is pursuing excellence. We want to look talk about a growth mindset. Our culture is not about we get to a point where you get your, perfect your units of work and you're done. You're not done. We're always about doing better and getting um, better. When we, are, we become a great school, we're going to become a greater school. We're just going to keep improving. And this is why we're pursuing excellence to create boundless opportunities for kids. And we do that with pride, respect and responsibility. Thank you.